Welcome to Back to the Basics with Pastor Jason McClendon. This program is sponsored by Crossroads Christian Fellowship, a non-denominational, conservative, and evangelical church focusing on returning to the mindset of believers in the New Testament church. The acronym BASICS, in the name of the program, stands for Believing and Sharing in Christ's Salvation. We are disciples making disciples who make disciples. And now, here is the message. Good morning, and welcome to Crossroads Christian Fellowship. This is part two of four of the deeper story of Christmas. Before we get started, let's pray. Father God, please be with each and every one of us as we are going through this message. We love you, we praise you, and we honor you. Amen. So as I just said, this is part two of four parts of the deeper story of Christmas. Last week, we spoke about why we need a Savior, about some of the prophecies of Jesus, why Mary had to be a virgin, and then the possibility of a historical birth date of December 25th, or something close to that. Today, we're going to talk about the trip to Bethlehem, what happened when they got there, the shepherds in the field, and the trip to Jerusalem for the purification ceremony. I'm going to start by reading Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Now, there's a lot more to the birth narrative here, but I'm going to break this down into chunks because it's a lot to read uh, in, in just one setting. So I'm going to break it down, and then we'll discuss each part as we, uh, as we go through it. So Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, it was the time for the census that was ordered for uh, by Caesar, and, and people were expected to travel to their ancestral homes in order to be registered for the census. And if you remember, both Joseph and Mary had family lineage that went directly back to King David. Bethlehem is also the birthplace of King David. Now note, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. There have been some questions as to whether or not this dating is correct, and statements made by some scholars that Quirinius wasn't actually the governor of Syria until around 10 years later, in 6 AD. However, a careful study of the Greek indicates that this translation in English can be conducted a couple of different ways. The most common rendering says something like, This was the first census while Quirinius was governor of Syria, like I just read. However, this could also be rendered a couple of other ways. It could be this was the first census before Quirinius was governor of Syria, or it could also be that this was the first census while Quirinius was minister of Syria. Now, this would mean a mistranslation of the title, but not necessarily of the responsibility. And additionally, according to Mark Strauss, an academic commentary writer who focuses on Luke, says that there exists some inscriptural evidence that Quirinius was actually governor of Syria twice, with a break in between where someone else was governor for several years, and then starting his second time in office in 6 AD, matching up with the other scholars. However, let it be known that there is sufficient evidence that the Bible is true. 
So while archaeological evidence doesn't always prove the facts of the Bible due to lack of evidence, no archaeological evidence has ever disproven anything in the Bible. And in fact, the biblical record has referenced many historical facts that neither historians nor archaeologists believed were true based just on what they read in the Bible. But they've later admitted its validity after finding external evidence that it was correct. So in this case, as in every case I have investigated, the biblical record stands. In our Christmas stories today, we normally imagine a picture of Joseph and Mary traveling alone, just the two of them, from Nazareth to Bethlehem. This was about a 90-mile trip one way and would have taken about five days to walk under normal conditions. However, with the fact that Mary was not only pregnant but expecting like, like literally within days, it might have taken closer to a week or so. One of the curious parts of this narrative is where it says that Jesus was laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, in the NIV translation I just read, it specifically, and I believe correctly, says there was no guest room available for them. But most translations render this as there was no room for them in the inn. So what does this mean? Well, first of all, there were no inns that we know of, uh, as we know them today at least. Uh, when we think of an inn, we generally think of something similar to uh, maybe a forerunner of a motel. But they didn't have motels in Bethlehem at that time. What we translate into the word inn today, again, most translations, was probably more like a guest room in someone's house, just like the NIV renders it. Further, when we think about the house of the time, we are most likely talking about a two-story structure where the family slept upstairs and the bottom floor was split by a wall between a cooking area and or maybe an eating area on one side and then an area to keep the animals on the other side. This area, which we could probably refer to as a stable or a barn, was not what we might think of a stable or a barn today as a separate building from the house. It was part of the ground floor of the first and only structure. The manger, which is actually a feeding trough for the household or domesticated animals, would have been in that area of the house. So to allow someone to sleep in this area would have certainly kept them out of the elements of the weather and safe from wild animals, but it would also have been considered insulting. I did a little research and was able to determine that most scholars believe the city of Bethlehem only had about a 100 residents at that time. So there weren't very many people there and certainly not many houses. If a lot of people were traveling back to Bethlehem from wherever they lived, they were probably staying with relatives in Bethlehem. It's quite likely that Joseph and Mary made the week-long trek with a group of people, uh, maybe most of the trek, if not all of it. Now, I want to bring in a little bit of speculation here, and, and to be clear, this is purely my opinion. There is absolutely no biblical support for this, but I personally think that Joseph and Mary were probably treated as outcasts when they got to Bethlehem. Here's why. Mary was, again, obviously about to give birth. And obviously, also, she got pregnant before she and Joseph were married. They were engaged, but they were not married. And as a side note, it, it appears that they were finally married shortly after Jesus was born is when they were they were considered to be married. This period of betrothal or engagement lasted about a year. And the big difference was that they didn't live together and there were no sexual relations. So at this point in time, they were still not considered married, but they were still considered engaged. Another reason why they were most likely traveling with a larger group of people. It is likely, however, that most of the people they were seeing in Bethlehem uh, did not realize 
the whole story behind the Holy Spirit conceiving Jesus, the whole story about the angels coming and visiting both Joseph and Mary, they didn't, they didn't know all that. So as far as many people were concerned, Mary had probably committed adultery and Joseph had simply forgiven her for that. Now, maybe there truly wasn't any more space in the guest rooms of their relatives' houses. But it's also likely that the relatives didn't want an adulterer about to give birth staying in their homes. So they were disrespected and told to stay in the barn or stable area with the animals. Now, again, I want to reiterate, this is pure speculation on my part. This is not in the biblical record. So it could be completely way off. It's just a, just a thought. And as we are doing biblical interpretation and we're trying to read into the culture and times of the day, uh, these are things that we look at, and so that's why I believe that that's probably true. Although Joseph and Mary had been visited by an angel and they knew that Jesus was the Messiah, the fact is that the vast majority of the people of that day expected a warrior king, not a Messiah who was born in the lowly state of a stable and lying in a feeding trough instead of being treated in a somewhat royal status. All right, I'm going to read Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 21. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. So when the angel, when, when, I'm sorry, when Jesus was born, an angel appeared to these shepherds in an area near Bethlehem and announced to them that the Messiah had been born. And the angel told them how to find him. The directions were simple. They would find him wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now remember, Bethlehem wasn't that big, maybe a total normal population of a hundred people or so. There was probably only one birth that night. So when the shepherds came looking, they probably found him pretty quickly. There were others in the area who heard it when the shepherds made known that they were had been told by an angel to come. So it's quite possible that with the testimony of Joseph as to seeing the angel, Mary as to seeing the angel, and then these shepherds pretty randomly showing up saying they had seen an angel, maybe somebody believed their combined testimonies and some converts were made that night. Again, pure speculation, but a pretty powerful circumstance. Surely at least some people were wondering, who is this baby? Who is this Jesus? Uh, Another point to note is that the angel said this would be good news for all people, not just the Jews. This highlights that Jesus came for the whole world, Jews and Gentiles alike. So, 
After this, Joseph and Mary, who were devout Jews and kept the required ordinances, made sure that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, and then they went to the temple in Jerusalem to complete the requirements for purification according to Jewish law. This purification period, which was really for Mary, lasted for 40 days, at the end of which sacrifices were made, and the child was then dedicated or presented to the Lord. Luke chapter 2, verses 21 to 24 says, On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So the reason for the purification ceremony was because the woman was considered unclean after childbirth. Now, certainly this was not true of Mary because Jesus was born in perfection. However, the trip to Jerusalem was still necessary. First, Joseph and Mary were devout Jews, and this was expected of them. Second, they were destined to meet Simeon and Anna while in Jerusalem. The description of what they were to sacrifice also provides an indication that they were poor, at least at this time in their lives. Simeon was a righteous and devout man who lived in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. He had literally been waiting for the Messiah and had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would live to see him. So he simply waited. From Luke 2, 25-35, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Note this says the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. They had an angel appear to both of them. They had confirmation from Mary's cousin Elizabeth, and they had the shepherd show up unexpectedly at the manger to see Jesus, proclaiming his birth had been announced by angels. And yet they are still marveling at what is being said about him. Even with all of this evidence, it was still overwhelming. And although they believe what's going on, it was still marvelous, and and they were still learning and, and how awesome this was. Simeon also noted, by the way, that this salvation was in the sight of all nations. Again, referencing the sacrifice of Jesus is for the whole world. From Luke chapter 2, verses 36 to 38, it says, There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. 
Can you imagine being Mary or Joseph and receiving all of this confirmation about who Jesus was in such a short period of time? Another point to add is that when they went to the temple, they probably had other family members with them. There were probably more people than just Joseph and Mary who witnessed all of these exciting proclamations. But where did they go from there? Sometimes people think there's a contradiction in the scriptures at this point. The, the Luke account in chapter 2, 39 to 40 says, When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. This seems to indicate that they went to Nazareth immediately after leaving Jerusalem. However, this isn't necessarily true. The Matthew account of this birth narrative doesn't mention going to Jerusalem at all. It simply says that after Jesus was born, the wise men came from the east. Now, I'm going to talk about the wise men coming to visit Jesus next week, but for now, let me briefly note that these wise men probably didn't show up immediately. In fact, it was more likely that at least a year and possibly even up to two years uh, had passed before they came. It is most likely that the family went back to Nazareth for a short time immediately after visiting the temple and then moved to Bethlehem and were in Bethlehem when the wise men came. From there, they moved to Egypt for several years and then back to Nazareth. Now, this doesn't make Luke's and Matthew's accounts contradictory. It just means that neither of them gave the complete full story, the complete full account of what happened. Instead, they only focused on what was important to their narrative. For instance, Luke doesn't even mention the whole story about the visitation coming from the wise men. So going back to Bethlehem wasn't part of the story that Luke was telling, nor, by the way, the flight to Egypt in Luke's story. So, We're going to talk about that next week as we go into that. For now, let's pray. Father, thank you for sending us a Savior. Thank you for providing us the means to be cleansed from our sins, as we don't have the ability to do so on our own. Thank you for the opportunity to know you and for the love that you give us every day. We ask that you allow us to join you in your work and to serve you however you need us. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, as you know, running a ministry is not free. There are many costs associated with developing and running programs, and we humbly ask for your support, especially if our messages have touched your heart or you believe they will touch the hearts of other people. We ask that you first pray about how God wants you to proceed, and then, if you feel led, help us focus on building the kingdom of God. If you are a Christian and you are not tithing anywhere, please consider tithing to us or consider gifting to us, however God leads. Remember, the money you have is God's money that He blessed you with to manage and to be a good steward. The money you tithe and gift to us builds the ministry of Crossroads Christian Fellowship and the International College for Christian Studies. The more financial support we receive, the more people we can reach. You can make this monthly contribution or one-time gift through PayPal by going to donationforchurch.com. You can also find other ways to donate on that webpage. Thank you in advance for your support, and may God bless you. Friends, I sincerely hope that you are already a follower of Jesus. But if you are not, you need to know that the Bible makes it absolutely clear that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. We are all sinners and we all need Jesus. None of us can do it on our own. When we die, we will either go to heaven or to hell. 
But the ability to spend eternity in heaven is a free gift from God. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Because He loved us so much, Jesus paid the penalty of death for our sins. He paid the price with His own blood, which means that we don't have to. That gift is free, and to receive it, all you have to do is recognize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Confess your sins to God, repent of your sins, in other words, you have to turn away from them, and turn your life over to Jesus, asking Him and allowing Him to be the Lord of your life. Remember, just because you repent and make Jesus your Lord does not mean you will instantly become perfect. But you do need to strive to model your life after Jesus. There are no magic formulas or special prayers to become a Christian. Just make it known to God. Just tell Him. He knows what's in your heart. Now, if you've made the decision to dedicate your life to Christ, which is often referred to as being born again, or if you've made the decision to rededicate your life to Christ, please let us know. Go to IamSavedByJesus.com and tell us about your decision. We'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to know if we can help you along the way. If you haven't made that decision yet, please pray about it, and we'll pray for you too if you let us know. This is the most important decision you can ever make in your entire life. It only takes a few seconds to decide, but the ramifications of your choice are literally eternal. Take it seriously. Remember, go to IamSavedByJesus.com, and we look forward to hearing from you. God bless. Well, it's almost time to go. Thank you for sharing this time with us. We are praying regularly for you and ask that you do the same for us. Until we come together again, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face towards you and give you peace. Go now into the world and serve the Lord. Amen.